Support for Healthcare Americana comes from Freedom HealthWorks. With Freedom HealthWorks, physicians, employers, and patients can thrive in direct care. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com to start your journey into direct care today. From Freedom HealthWorks, it's Healthcare Americana, a show about innovators, idealists, and pioneers in healthcare. Today's guest on Healthcare Americana is in the vanguard of efforts to improve healthcare at the policy level and also the ground level by identifying and eliminating the non-clinical middlemen that interfere with doctor-patient relationships and drive up costs. Dr. Rupali Chada is a board-certified psychiatric physician who diagnoses and treats mental illness and is certified in the specialty area of forensics. She treats various mental illnesses, including mood disorders, anxiety disorders, psychotic disorders, eating disorders, substance-related disorders, sleep disorders, and emotional disturbances secondary to chronic medical conditions. So she brings a unique perspective to our debate over how to improve healthcare. Today, she also shares insight regarding the psychological burden imposed by the COVID pandemic and offers our listeners valuable tips on how to better cope mentally and physically with the strain. Healthcare is the only sphere when you go as a patient to the doctor's office or to get an MRI or you get hospitalized, you have no idea what your bill is going to be. So we have no price transparency, super surprise billing. I call it super surprise billing because that's how I usually feel, super surprised. And all these topics just got me really personally riled up for myself, for my family, for my patients. And I said, hey, you know, instead of, you know, don't get mad, get even. So I said, I'm gonna go do something about it. And I'm trying. Welcome back to Healthcare Americana. This is your guest host, Adam Habig, sitting in once again for Christopher Habig, uh, who may be rejoining the show as soon as next week. So fingers crossed. Uh, But it might not be the last time you hear from me. Uh, Today, I am joined by Dr. Rupali Chada a prison and psychiatric physician uh, who has some interesting aspects of the current COVID pandemic to discuss, uh, but also to to begin the show, Dr. Chadden, I thank you for joining us. Uh, Very recently, you had the uh, opportunity to rub shoulders with the President of the United States. Can you tell us about that? Sure. I got a call last Wednesday, and I was told that our President will be signing four executive orders, which will help reform prescription medication costs, um, so that little niche of healthcare. And I have been working on reducing healthcare costs for a few years and was told, hey, get on a plane and you get to stand next to the president as he signs on Friday. So off to DC I went. Very exciting stuff. And you have the photo op to prove it. Uh, I've seen it. So that's Super exciting. Well, tell us, that's exciting stuff. How do these executive orders um, that were recently enacted, how do these affect healthcare? How do we see improvement coming from these? As I mentioned, all four of them reduce um, prescription healthcare costs in America. Um, They're very much aimed at reducing costs for seniors and all Americans. The first one basically talks about making America competitive. So our pharma industry produces all of our drugs, pretty much. And yet they're sold across the world for a lot cheaper. And we pay sometimes three, four, five times as much as other countries do. And a big reason for that is negotiation. 
the other countries just negotiated better than we did. So President Trump basically said we're renegotiating this uh, pricing and we're going to stop having Americans burden, take the burden of the brunt of the costs for medications that the entire world gets to benefit from. And then the other order that was really interesting was that if, you, if there's a life-saving medication, it can't be astronomically expensive. For example, insulin and EpiPens. So that was an excellent executive order. And then the one that interests me the most and where I do most of my healthcare policy work is focusing on what is euphemistically called rebates, but they're actually legalized kickbacks sanctioned by Congress to, in this executive order, specifically pharmacy benefit managers in the realm of Medicare. So middlemen, I don't know if you know anything about what middlemen do in healthcare, but just to give a quick blurb, uh, pharmacy benefit managers in particular, they go to pharma companies who actually do produce drugs that we need. So I'm not saying anything's wrong with pharma, but they go to pharma and they say, hey, you want your medications in pharmacies? Uh, we need a little something extra, extra. Then they go to the pharmacies and they say the same thing. Hey, you want these access to these drugs? Well, we need a little something extra, extra. So they're basically getting all these kickbacks from both sides and um, that drives up the cost of healthcare, drives up the cost of medications. So President Trump said, hey, Medicare is somewhere where I can actually, you know, have some say and I can do an executive order. Everywhere else where we have kickbacks, we need Congress to enact legislation. But in this specific niche, so Medicare obviously takes care of most of our seniors. Hey, no more kickbacks. They're no longer allowed. And this will dramatically drop the price of medications in our country. Wow, that seems like such a no-brainer. Um a very, a very bipartisan or nonpartisan issue. I, I, I love it. And, and that, uh, again, I hope my, uh, I hope the audience is as intrigued as I am by that because you often don't understand how uh, drugs are priced and how the economics behind not just developing a drug, but, but developing it. And certainly we know that takes immense amounts of, of capital and investment to get a drug from basically the, the drawing table, drawing board to, uh, through clinical trials to the point where it's now um, safe and, and approved to use. But that aside, um, the economics of the middlemen, as you call them, still dramatically contort the price of the drugs that we purchase today. Uh, fascinating. Uh, I, we could probably go down a, um, an entirely separate avenue when it comes to that. Um, but, uh, how else, cause this is, this is intriguing as well. I know this is your forte. This is the space that you focus on both in the policy realm and, and, um, in your practice. So, so can you tell us a little bit more about your work? What else are you doing in that space to help, um, reform healthcare and, and, and lower the cost and improve its affordability? So, like I said, the, I work with actually a coalition called free to care and, um, there are, tens of thousands of physicians in this coalition. And we talk to not just legislators in DC. So we go to DC, we have summits, we talk to individual congressmen and senators, but I actually work pretty actively in Orange County. And I do congressional town halls with pretty much brand new candidates because they are not, I guess, so-called murky by the swamp. They are untouched. They don't have any special interest money coming to them. So brand spanking new folks. And I like to tell them about what is wrong in healthcare. So 
So I will do a town hall and I will any, you know, either side of the aisle, anyone wants to have me come speak, I will go up there and tell all their potential constituents why middlemen make healthcare expensive, um, why we don't have negotiating power like the rest of the world does, um, you know, why it's not actually cost effective to put mid-levels like nurse practitioners and physician assistants in place of doctors, why insurance companies are in bed with middlemen. There are so many issues in healthcare that artificially drive up cost. And I got interested in this because when I was a medical student, I initially wanted to do neurosurgery. And I had this great attending um, named Dr. Lanzino. And he had invited, and he was from Italy originally, and he had invited a neurosurgeon from India. And the neurosurgeon I remember from India had asked him, hey, if you can prove to me that your cervical screw to fix cervical spines, if your screw is better than mine, I will pay out of pocket. And his screw was something like a couple hundred rupees, and the screws here are thousands of dollars. And I remember even as a third-year medical student, the wheels started turning, like, why is this happening? Is it just because we can afford it? We have to pay more? And most Americans cannot afford this. The other thing that really, you know, ruffles my feathers is that healthcare is the only sphere when you go as a patient to the doctor's office or get an MRI or you get hospitalized, you have no idea what your bill is going to be. So we have no price transparency, super surprise billing. I call it super surprise billing because that's how I usually feel, super surprised. And all these topics just got me really personally riled up for myself, for my family, for my patients. And I said, hey, you know, what do they say? Um, instead of, you know, don't get mad, get even. So I said, I'm going to go do something about it. And I'm trying. Kudos to you. That, that uh, certainly for... Listeners of the program, that is a recurring theme that we uh, we try to to keep front and center. It's it, it's a marvelous system in terms of healthcare that we have here in America, but there is so much room for improvement. And um, many times that simply involves shining a light onto some of those dark, murky corners where uh, you just don't quite know how the numbers are are generated and and. The economics are, are just too difficult to understand, too opaque. Transparency is, sunshine is often the best antiseptic. And I think that's what you're saying is that in many cases, simply by uh, perhaps in opening things up to a little bit of market competition, uh, uh, by, by at least showing prices so there can be uh, some, some uh, comparison shopping that occurs, whether it's drugs, whether it's medical products, even procedures, um, it can work wonders for value and, and enhancing the value that consumers um, can expect to receive. So that kudos to you for that. It, it's, it certainly is something that we find it, you know, interesting with direct primary care um, from the Freedom Health Work side. And we talked to many physicians and, and being able to try to cut through all of that red tape and, and, and that um, the murkiness is, is something that many physicians really would like to be able to do and, and many, many consumers as well. Um, how are you finding, uh, I guess it's one thing to expose these problems, Dr. Chada. How are you finding uh, success in actually remedying some of these things? How do you take, take the drug, for example, the, the drug pricing, I mean, executive order is a great step. Um, but are there other things that are occurring to help um, cut through some of that to where you can actually get rid of the middleman or, purchase direct, some, some ideas that we've seen bubble to the forefront? 
I think what it's going to take is public outcry because we've been talking to congressmen and women for years and a lot of them I think play dumb <laughs> because they they apparently have no idea that this is going on even when you talk to congressmen and women who are on the committees that deal with health care so that's a little surprising to me um, but every time I do a town hall or I tweet or I you know, get up in front of an audience or do a podcast, I find that patients get mad. And aren't we all patients? So when patients get angry and then they start calling their state legislators, their congressmen and women, their, their senators, that's when we're going to really see a dramatic change. And um, no president has ever, <laughs> love him or hate him, no president has ever kind of gone for the jugular like this. So we are very... Um, shop. There is still tremendous work to do. This is just pharmacy benefit managers in Medicare. So this is potentially going to reduce healthcare costs by $30 billion a year just from the from not allowing these rebate, rebates or kickbacks. But if we were to expand this to all middlemen in healthcare, it would be a health cost savings of $200 billion a year. So that's where we are heading. We celebrated our little you know, win for the country on Friday. And then literally the very next day, um, we got back to work. And tonight, uh, we have a policy meeting with all of our, our docs that are very, very involved across the country. And we're like, okay, what's the next step? You know, we got the EOs going. And there's a lot of pushback. I mean, Pharma refused to meet with the president, <laughs> I think yesterday or the day before, because this is a big blow and there's a lot of spin that's happening, um, saying that this is actually going to somehow drive up costs of medication for seniors when it's actually going to do the opposite. And as you mentioned, this is a, it's not even a bipartisan, I liked how you put it, this is a nonpartisan thing. Every single American is a patient or a potential patient. So we should all be really rallying behind this. Fantastic update. And, and I appreciate you uh, drawing attention to that because it, um, so often, I guess in the daily news cycle, you, people get caught up in um, the bad news so much. And this is more of an observation on just the way we function today as a society that you miss the stories like this, where there's tremendous headway, tremendous progress that's being made. Um, but because it's not something on fire or, uh, you know, it's just, it's not going to grab the headline on the front page. But this is intriguing. I, it, it and it dovetails nicely with the uh, the notion of transparency when it comes to uh, things like hospital pricing. I know that's been something that for some reason has been controversial. And I think for a lot of the same reasons that you mentioned, uh, there's been opposition that um, counterintuitively claims this is going to drive up prices by simply exposing them. I don't know how that's ever functioned in the history of market economies. And um, we do have somewhat of a of a market economy and healthcare still today, although it's been corrupted so much that it, it's almost unrecognizable. But the the smidgen that's left still has the capacity, as you mentioned with your example of of the the um, I think it was the medical screw you talked about that you know if you can find something that is a better value, a lower price, same quality, or or, or something of that nature, it it everybody wins from that. So how how in the world would it make sense to to choke off those other options, to, to cloud pricing transparency, whether it comes to drugs, services, anything else in healthcare? 
And absolutely. I mean, I live in Newport Beach, California, which is the land of plastic surgery. So we see this in cosmetic procedures, breast augmentation, even LASIK eye surgery, where we've had the ability to have competition. I mean, you can get your peepers fixed with a Groupon. So, you know, if when there is this competition, we've seen prices go down. The physicians who are working hard, their staff, they actually make more money, patients pay way less, and they get a better outcome because there's competition. So we really have already seen this in our country, um, you know, in this sphere. And what's to say that if we're, if MRI companies were competing or um, bariatric surgeons were competing, that we wouldn't see the same cost savings? I think we absolutely would. And, and it's starting to happen. I mean, the good news is, and I'm sure, um, you know, with, with your efforts with Free to Care, you're seeing these types of innovation, if you call it that, start to to permeate um, the system, as we call it. But um, it's great to see when there's big strides made for, made like this, where uh, leaps and bounds move the thing forward. I I agree with you. It's going to take it will take uh, really systemic recognition of the problem and wide scale um, uh, consumers embracing these types of, of notions and, and understanding that, hey, we're all getting ripped off and you don't just want to bury your head in the sand and say, well, that's an insurance issue for my health insurance company to deal with. No, because in the end, you're paying and, and the, the cost will filter down to you no matter where you are in, in, in terms of your premiums and uh, no matter what healthcare costs you do bear in the end. So kudos to your efforts there and, and to all the doctors who are helping this become a reality. Um, fascinating. Anyways, that great um, insight. I, I know that the other big story these days, the ongoing uh, COVID-19 pandemic, uh, which um, is seemed to dominate really the, the, it seems like all of 2020. I know it really didn't hit until close to the end of Q1, but um, it, it certainly has had a profound impact. I know that it's taught us a lot of things. It's taught um, folks who, who, who work in healthcare and physicians like yourself um, have insights based on what we've learned from this pandemic. Um, could you share your thoughts on, on things that this has exposed, uh, perhaps within our, our system or within our population at large? You know, so I, I am a psychiatric physician or psychiatrist, and I, I work in both a prison setting and in a forensic setting. So I have a very particular niche. But I did find it very unusual that a lot of medical boards actually sent us letters saying that we could or could not prescribe certain medications, that, you know, they had certain concerns. So this is the first time I'm, I'm seeing government involvement or state agency involvement in how we practice medicine um, to the point of setting, sending threatening letters to doctors. So I've seen quite a shift in and how healthcare is um, run, how they want us to deliver it. So it's been, it's been quite remarkable to see that. I've obviously seen the mental wellness effects of COVID or lack thereof um, on a daily basis in my patient population. So that's been really um, something that I've been more focused on, but certainly it's the first time, at least in my 12 year history of practicing medicine, that I have seen this type of governmental insight. Very interesting. So not just in terms of the way government has, has reacted to this uh, and, and the way that they um, 
have interacted with with physicians, but we even within the population at large, uh, certainly there have been vulnerabilities. Um, mm-hmm. Perhaps within, uh, if if you could reduce this down to the the, the individual level, uh, and we've seen this time and time again, this this virus affects certain people different ways, and. Uh, it has a lot to do with lifestyle and has a lot to do with underlying conditions. So you've been seeing that firsthand though. Oh yeah. So, you know, I always counsel my patients that the healthier are, the healthier choices you make, the better you're going to be equipped to deal with this virus. And that's both emotional and physical health. So being isolated is something that is not healthy for us. And a lot of us have been either working from home or not being able to see our family members if they have high risks. I have a friend who's a physician, also a psychiatrist in Colorado, and for the first few weeks of this pandemic, as he was going out to work, he lived in the basement. So he couldn't see his wife, he couldn't see his children, and there is a huge emotional cost that we aren't talking about. We, I mean, Zoom is great, <laughs> you know, video conferencing is great, FaceTimes are great, but they are no replacement for human contact. And then also, you know, people have been joking about this COVID-19 that we're all kind of sitting around. I mean, alcohol sales have increased, I think, 300%. And people are drinking and eating. And, you know, what is a risk factor for developing COVID? Well, obesity. So there are, all these things are quite married. I always tell patients, you know, the way you take care of your body is married to how you feel because your brain is not floating in space. It's attached to the rest of you. And you have to make wise choices and how you eat and how you move your body and, and also in how you interact with other people so you can have that state of wellness. I love to say just because we're not mentally ill doesn't mean we're mentally well. And I think that's a really important uh, concept to recognize that we have to protect and guard our wellness. And it's been extra hard during this pandemic. What a, and that's a profound concept. And often it doesn't get uh, equal billing with say the, uh, um, the, like I said, the headlines that are, are discussing infection rates and, and the prevalence of the virus, but simply the, the countermeasures that we've been compelled to take uh, for better or worse have created the situation where uh, we could be really exacerbating the long-term effects of the pandemic once it passes and, and God willing that that comes sooner rather than later. But we're still going to be left with the notion or, or this, this um, issue of people having been, been somewhat locked down or, or sequestered for a long period of time with ill effects, both physically and, and mentally. And um, that's, that's a fascinating factor that I, I've not heard discussed. And I, I appreciate you bringing that up. I've heard people talk about the, the fallout economically from people who've had to shut down their businesses or change their careers based on the, the, um, the countermeasures taken, but you don't often hear about the impact on, um, on psychiatric health that, that people that, that go through this, it does certainly have an impact. And, and I think no one is, is not affected by that, but, um, certainly you must be seeing it, as you mentioned, are, 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 are there any, any solutions to that, Dr. Chada, any, anything we can do other than, I mean, we certainly can't open up again, it seems for some time, but, uh, what do we do? Well, I mean, unfortunately, I'm writing a lot of prescriptions, but I always tell people that medication only helps you if you actually have a brain disease, not if you're demoralized or sad, 
Those are normal responses to human conditions and human situations. But if you have a brain disease, yes, medicine will help. But I'm getting requests from people who I know you know, have the coping skills to deal with this and don't actually have major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, like railing me for prescriptions. So that's one end of the spectrum. But there's a lot we can do to stay mentally well, even if you're not mentally ill. So exercise. I don't care if that's walking and stretching. No one's asking, you know, y'all to become marathoners or Olympic lifters. Just walking and stretching are excellent. Walking outside if you can, um, you know, get out into nature, walk on the grass, you know, do whatever you can to get a little bit of movement. I myself have been doing just 20 minutes a day of restorative yoga just to kind of take good care of myself and going for walks, and I find it very helpful. Um, I actually come from an obstacle course racing background, so I was someone who was like a gym rat, lifting, running, all that stuff, and it's really shifted because gyms are not necessarily safe places to go right now. So modify what you love. If you love you know, Zumba classes and now you can't take them, well, have a dance party in your living room. Do something to move. And then the other flip side of that is I always like to say that you know, exercise is the greatest anxiety buster and mood booster, but it goes hand in hand with what you eat. And of course, when you're quarantined and your mood is not great, I mean, pizza sounds great, wine sounds great, have those things. I'm not saying eliminate them, but choose more plant-based foods. Even if you eat, um, you know, if you have a non-vegetarian diet or a non-vegan diet and you eat meat, that's fine. I'm not here to tell you what to eat. But add more plant-based foods. Uh, plant-based foods are shown to actually have higher antidepressant food scores than other foods, spinach being the highest. So there was a study a couple of years ago where they actually took different foods and they did a depression and mood rating scale. And they found that plant-based foods, they're so anti-inflammatory, they have so many great antioxidants that they actually help boost your mood. So you know, if you wanna have a burger, have a burger, but put some veggies on the side. If you want to eat you know, processed carbs and have pasta, throw some veggies in there. Toss in a smoothie. That's usually an easy way to get a lot of great plant-based nutrients. So those two things are, the, the, I think, the most substantial advice that I give to patients. And then you know, make connections. So obviously, like I mentioned, Zoom and FaceTime are not the same, but there's something. You know, have, my sister does this. She lives in New Jersey, and they have kind of like those row houses and they all have their backyards intersecting. So they'll sit on their patios, socially distanced, not just six feet, but maybe 27 feet. As you know, droplets actually go 27 feet, not six feet. Six feet was arbitrarily chosen as our safe you know, number. Um, and all the neighbors, they pick a night out of the week and they all sit out in the back and they pour their beverage of choice, whether it be water or wine, and they have a conversation. So make sure that you're having some human contact. Uh, it's super important even though people have varying word quotas, varying extroversion, introversion, it's still important to connect. Very, very so. Very, very much so. Absolutely. Thanks for the tip. So French fries, not considered a veggie to go on the side with my burger, right? <laughs> Potatoes actually are a great food source or a great plant-based food, but don't fry them. You can roast them. You can mash, make mashed potatoes. Actually, potatoes are, are, are good foods. They're good starches. But fix sweet potatoes maybe, and please, yeah, don't fry them. <laughs> Great insight. I, I hope our audience appreciates that because it is, 
it, it is sometimes easy to overlook um, those those small things during this unprecedented time. And I know I know people I talk to all the time, and they talk about the COVID fifteen, almost like the freshman fifteen in, in college or something. It's like no, that doesn't have. It's not inevitable. But not uh, inevitable. follow this advice. Keep yourself well, both physically and 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 mentally, and and hopefully we emerge from this sooner rather than later. I, I thought, um, and I appreciate you being here today. I know you, you do, um, part of your practice is in prison. Can you give us some insight into that? I imagine the audience would like to hear a little bit of how that perhaps differs from uh, practice outside in, in the, the rest of this, the healthcare world, but uh, perhaps some insight into what you deal with in that front. Yeah, so obviously my inmates have a lot less coping skills available to them. They are now all pretty much quarantined. They don't have yard time, so they can't take that walk. They get yard time one hour a week um, often, which is really hard. Um, And also have, you know, when you're cooped up, imagine if you're on a family vacation and you're just cooped up with your family, wherever it may be, even if it's in a beautiful tropical location, you're going to fight. You're going to have other drama. And I actually was a state hospital doctor for 10 years and chief of medical staff uh, at a hospital in Los Angeles. And I saw a lot of violence there. Um, Prison's actually a little bit less violent, believe it or not, because the inmates are less mentally ill. They're just not, as I mentioned, mentally well. So there are a lot of things that inhibit them uh, from choosing wellness. And, you know, some people say, well, they're in prison, tough luck. Well, part of being in prison is rehabilitation. And uh, that arm is missing. And it's hard. And you know, I've actually even heard from moms who are now having to work and homeschool and deal with all these added pressures also have, you know, similar issues in that they have less coping skills available. They can't just say, Oh, the kids are in school for a little while or I'm actually driving to work so I get a bit of a break. So this is like the, the mental wellness concept. Whatever, wherever you are, to take a little minute to take some time for yourself is, is very important. Fascinating. And one thing, I, I know we uh, certainly speak a lot about direct care and direct primary care on, on Healthcare Americana. Um, and I, I might have asked you this in, in the, um, the, the pre-call conversation, but um, is there uh, an element of direct primary care that is now being uh, used within the prison system or the prison environment? Uh, I know you're an advocate of the system of kind of removing middlemen. So did I, did I understand that correctly? So I, I love direct primary care. I think, um, you know, before I first started as concierge medicine, which was expensive, and now it's translated into something that's affordable for everyone. Unfortunately, no, I work for okay. a government system. So um, our health Care is more like socialized healthcare, which um, has drawbacks. I actually was raised in Canada for the majority of my childhood, and there are drawbacks to that system. It's nice to cover everybody, but you have limited access. Some of my inmates have to wait a very long time for specialists, months, months, and months to see a specialist. They do have uh, readily available psychiatrists and and primary care doctors, and that's only because of the result of lawsuits, at least in my state. So, you know, there are pluses and minuses. Yes, we can cover everybody with a socialized or government-run system, but what is the quality of care you're getting versus direct primary care where you also get an inexpensive coverage, but you're getting something way, way more valuable, more bang for your buck for sure. 
Yes, and and I couldn't agree more. The the notion of removing middlemen, I know that's a recurring theme. We keep going back to it, but it, it seems that there there's so much value to be gained throughout healthcare by simply excising those middlemen that are not adding value. I thought there was a a great quote once that I, I, I uh, forgive me, I cannot attribute this correctly, but um, someone opined that that all value in healthcare is created or destroyed at the point of care. It's profound. You think about this yeah. industry that is, that is, you know, one sixth of our entire economy. And you think about the entire industry boils down to an interaction in an exam room, for instance, between a physician and a patient. And everything else is just noise. Everything else is just part of the machinery. Profound. Yeah. And the big problem is, is that doctors are no longer in charge of healthcare. And it's, you know, although hospital administrators and the folks with MBAs are, are great bean counters, we need them too, but they should not be the people primarily in charge of medical decisions. Um, this is a problem. Whether we develop health savings accounts to cut costs, we get rid of middlemen, whatever we decide to do, some combination of all of the above, we need to put physicians back in charge of care and get the government, middlemen, and corporate medicine out of our exam room. Couldn't agree more. And, and physicians need to take the reins and, and step into that. I think for so long, and I, I, I can say this as the, the progeny of, of two primary care physicians myself, um, that physicians have, have uh, somewhat abdicated um, that role that they, they need to recapture. And, and not, I'm not trying to lay the, the, the blame is, is on really how the system has, has evolved in in a way that has distanced the patient and the physician. But this entire outgrowth with, with administrators and, and middlemen and um, the entire apparatus that, that gets in the way, drives up cost and, and infringes on those, the, the three aspects of quality and access and affordability. Well, if you look at those barriers, those are thrown up by these folks that, are, that we're referring to as middlemen, whether it's with drugs, whether it's with procedures, services, you name it. And so if if we can empower physicians to really recapture some of that ground, um, I think that they can be the, the leaders that take us, take the system forward and into uh, away from where we've come and, and back to something that is more balanced and more Absolutely. value driven. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we've been duped. I think physicians have been told like, Oh, you can't do this by yourself. You know, you, all these things are so expensive. Now you need us. And then the other thing is getting physicians to cooperate together, which I'm involved in actually another uh, very interesting enterprise called My Doctor, and it's a pro-social media being developed right now. Doctor spelled with a Q, so My Doctor with a Q, um, and it's solely designed to connect physicians to each other and physicians directly to the patient. I think sometimes getting doctors to work together is like herding kittens and really hard because we are so independent and we are, you know, so used to making our own decisions. I was told, I trained at Johns Hopkins Hospital and I was told MD means making decisions, but all the decisions have been essentially taken away from us. We've been tricked into thinking we can't do this by ourselves and we need corporate medicine. And that's the first truth that we really need to shine a light on is that we don't need them. We can utilize them for what purpose they serve, but we need to connect to each other as doctors and then directly to our patients in whatever capacity we can. 
I couldn't agree more. Is, is there, I, I want to go back to something you mentioned growing up in Canada and the unique perspective that that offers you that many of our um, audience members might not fully grasp. And we've talked about the notion that there's a drive towards socialized medicine or single payer, whatever the, whatever we're calling it these days within the United States, that that's got to be um, really the, 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 the savior of the system, if you will. And um, could, could you just give us a couple more words on, you mentioned access is a serious problem in systems like Canada's. Yes. Uh, and I, I know I've, I've mentioned this with a, a previous guest on the show that um, the, some of the Canadian friends that I have, when I direct them to options here in the United States that are more um, direct care, whether it's a surgical center or um, cash-based practice of some sort, you know, they're looking at me like I'm crazy thinking, how can that even be? But when I tell them, and here's the price and you can go online, book your appointment and you'll get it done in two weeks. And they're thinking, I'm on a, I'm on a nine month wait list or an 18 month waiting list. Exactly. It's incredible, exactly. but great perspective from your end though. Yeah, no, I had childhood asthma and I remember my parents having to wait months and months for an appointment with a specialist. And therefore instead uh, we utilize emergency rooms a lot. And that certainly drives up costs. Emergency room care is insanely expensive and everyone thinks it's like, you know, the one-stop shop for everything. So the best way to take care, you know, the, the old adage, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You don't want to be running to the emergency room every time your kid is hypoxic. You know, you don't want to run to the emergency room every time your sugars are out of whack. It's so much better to have a system where you have access to your doctors right away and at regular intervals, so you're not accessing expensive emergency room care. And unfortunately, we're going to have a huge decline in the quality of care, the access of care, if we have a single-payer system. And if people don't believe me, call up someone in Canada, call up someone in, I mean, in the UK, I did part of my training there as well, at least to have the option to buy additional insurance, so you have both a private and a public healthcare system. But call up people in some of these countries and say, hey, or someone who's older, well, guess what? You're not gonna live that long anyway, so we're gonna not prioritize you. Or you have cancer, well, your chances are only 20%, so screw that. I mean, do we really want that in our country? I don't think so. I think that goes, every, that goes against everything American uh, values stand for. I hope our congressional audience is listening. We're going to pause briefly for a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back with Healthcare Americana. There comes a time when the man of the house must take charge. Family planning is a tough conversation for many. And at Happy Dad Vasectomy, we understand that decision isn't easy. When your family is complete, our no-needle, no-scalpel, no-stitches procedure will give you peace of mind about your family's future. Happy Dad Vasectomy conveniently books appointments within two weeks of calling and has locations in central and northern Indiana. Visit happydadvasectomy.com to learn more. Happy Dad Vasectomy, the easiest part of family planning. We're back with Healthcare Americana. Uh, Dr. Chata, uh, to conclude today, I, I know that you've mentioned several uh, grassroots organizations that physicians can get involved with. Uh, potentially even consumers and laymen like myself. Can you go through a couple of those um, that you're involved with and perhaps inform the audience how they can get involved in some of these uh, actions as well? Absolutely. 
I think right now the most important thing is for doctors to connect with each other, even if we don't see eye to eye on every single issue, because the one thing we do see eye to eye on is that our practice is being taken over by middlemen and corporate medicine. So one great organization I'm involved with is mydoctor.com, and it is a brand new, um, basically pro-social media site that allows doctors to connect with each other and connect directly to patients. So if you have a DPC practice or you have a private practice that's cash-based and you can offer competitive rates even if you're out of network and the patient's not going through insurance, hey, why not? It's all about having options. So my doctor is one that I'm very, very excited about. It's spelled my doctor with a Q, mydoctor.com. The Q is for quality, they say, and I love it. I think that's very catchy. And also, there are some others, some I can't talk about because I'm working on building those practices up and uh, still in very early stages, and I signed an NDA. <laughs> but another one is HPAC, and I am not directly involved, but basically it is an organization that um, is creating its own technology so that we can be credentialed as doctors ourselves and not look to outside bodies to credential us. And that will revolutionize um, healthcare. And, you know, we have things like Amazon Health coming. We have CVS in their minute clinics. And these, these healthcare organizations are staffed by mid-levels or physician assistants, nurse practitioners, psychologists that prescribe. And while we do need all levels of healthcare, there are no replacement for doctors. So my doctor, HPAC, other organizations that are working together, and all these organizations, as far as I've known so far, are talking to each other. We need to collaborate. We need to have a space for doctors to share ideas. Another really great uh, magazine that I'm involved with is Physician Outlook magazine, um, which has now been started by Dr. Marlene Smith. And that magazine is an uncensored, unfiltered, uncut place where you get articles from physicians and people involved in healthcare, and it's for doctors and patients. So like I said, the doctors are mad. We're mad because we feel like our practice has been taken over. There are so many people in our exam room when there really should just be the doctor and the patient. And, you know, stay tuned because we are, we are getting together, and that's going to be a powerful thing. Well, changes are on the horizon. We will uh, see this this movement progress. Certainly, uh, we at, at Freedom HealthWorks are are right there with you, pulling on the same oar, uh, offering physicians an alternative uh, to what they see today in, in terms of the medical system. Dr. Rupali Chada, I really appreciate you joining me today. I know we have covered a breadth of topics, uh, starting with your recent trip to the White House and uh, through some some tips for uh, surviving and thriving the COVID pandemic. And then uh, uh, we finished up with uh, some really systemic analysis in terms of how the system can uh, change. And that's first, it starts with identifying what's wrong with the system so we can actually uh, focus on, on how to change it. So very much appreciate you joining us today. I know our Healthcare Americana audience is really going to enjoy uh, this episode. And uh, I appreciate you again being a guest on our show. Thank you so much for having me. Healthcare Americana is powered by Freedom HealthWorks, managed by Melissa Turpin, produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro. Send us your thoughts at info at healthcareamericana.com. I'm Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening.
Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. And hey, if you're interested in becoming a sponsor, let us know that too. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.